2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Doran Tausig, the author of What We Mean by the American Dream, Stories We Tell About Meritocracy. According to Professor Tausig, the American Dream is built on the idea that Americans end up roughly where we deserve to be in our working lives based on our efforts and abilities. In other words, the United States is supposed to be a meritocracy. When Americans think and talk about our lives, we grapple with this idea, asking how a person got to where he or she is and whether he or she earned it. In what we mean by the American dream, Tausig tries to figure out how we answer those questions. Weaving together interviews with Americans from many walks of life, as well as stories told in the U.S. media about prominent figures from politics, sports, and business, what we mean by the American dream investigates how we think about whether an individual deserves an opportunity, job, termination, paycheck, or fortune. Towson looked. Get into the fabric of American life to explore how various people, including dairy farmers, police officers, dancers, teachers, computer technicians, students, store clerks, the unemployed, homemakers, and even drug dealers got to where they are today and whether they earned it or not. Tausig's frank assessment of the state of the US workforce and its dreams allows him to truly and meaningfully ask the question that underpins so many of our political debates and personal frustrations. Did you earn it? By doing so, he sheds new light on what we mean by and how we can deliver on the American dream of today. Doran Tausig is Visiting Assistant Professor of Media and Communication Studies at Ursinus College, prior to which he was a journalist for 10 years. Doran Tausig, welcome to the New Books Network. Tom, oh, thanks so much for having me. So uh, before we jump into it, I'm, I want to ask you, um, first, you know, thank you for taking the time to talk today and for really a truly fascinating book on this really important topic. Let me start by asking you, what brought you to the subject of American meritocracy?
1: Uh, well, my, I guess my... Uh... My upbringing brought me to the subject of American meritocracy. You know, I think, I think, I, I think a lot of people uh, grow up with sort of meritocracy as an important backdrop to the the sort of story that they're weaving about their own life as they go through it. Uh, I ended up, I think, in a situation where that was like really explicit and acute. So I grew up in uh, in New York City in Queens. Um, and the way the public school, high school system works in New York City is there like a number of, uh, magnet schools you can take tests to get into. And so all the, all the middle-class people, you know, scramble to try to get into those schools. And I got into one of those, it was called Hunter College High School. Um, it was in Manhattan, you know, commuting and then kids are commuting from all five boroughs to go to this school. And, um... And it was just a very like hyper meritocratic place. By which I don't mean actually meritocratic. I mean sort of like the the um, the, the stories it was telling and, and the things it was telling students and things like would and should do. You guys the best and brightest. You're going to go on to do X Y Z amazing things. And you know half of the class gets into Harvard or something every year. You know, so it was just this like very meritocratic place. Uh, and then, you, you know, get out of our eye, got out into the wider world and, you know, experienced a number of successes and disappointments and, um, and just kind of found myself interested in whether or not uh, other people had the same hang-ups that I did, about <laughs> like whether we were uh, earning or deserving our successes and failures.
2: And, uh, and I decided to, to ask them. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, my my son is fourteen, and we're we're exploring high schools right now, and um, and it's really interesting the way that the some of the the local schools frame the the ideas uh, of what they can offer to uh, to young people. So. Um, I want, to, I want to go next to asking you to read a little from your book. Uh, again, it, it's an excellent book. Um, if you could uh, pick up uh, from the end of the introduction, um, that, that last paragraph.
1: There is a great deal of emotional and material investment tied up in the American idea that merit can and should be rewarded in our working lives. It serves as, as a justification for the distribution of prestige and resources in society and informs our sense of self-worth. After talking to Americans about the role merit plays in their own lives and reading accounts of the lives of American public figures, I think that the ways we assess merit are in many ways confused and contradictory, but also in an important sense filled with potential. We are in a moment now when, because of simmering doubts about meritocracy, Interrogating our assumptions and tapping this potential seem possible. That's why this book exists.
2: So let's start by defining some terms for folks. Uh, we can probably do this a couple of different ways. What do we mean by meritocracy and what does it have to do with the American dream? Or I suppose even alternatively, what do we mean by the American dream and what does that have to do with meritocracy?
1: Okay. Let's, let's, let me start with, uh, uh meritocracy. Meritocracy is, is, uh, is a social system in which people sort of, you know, succeed and fail or advance, uh, based on their efforts and abilities. Um, this is an idea that, uh, Traces back well before anybody used the word meritocracy. You know, uh, the word meritocracy was coined, I think, in like the 19... I should know this because I wrote a book about it, but it's in the book. So like the 1950s. Um, But, you know, way back at the founding of this country, Thomas Jefferson talked about uh, the country having an aristocracy of talent, right? Um, So the the idea is is a society where people are sort of uh, rising according to their merits, Right. Um, so that's that's meritocracy. Did you ask me to talk about what merit means? I can't remember. Or is that or is that for later?
2: We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But let's let's discuss this idea of, of you know what you just described. Yeah. It, you know, And again, a lot of people point this out, but meritocracy was originally coined as sort of um, a, a, a term of opprobrium. Right. It was something that uh, it was almost mocking the idea. In its original version. Yeah, it's a, it, it's
1: amazing. And so so I, I, I do know it was by a British uh, sociologist named Michael Young, um, and yeah, he 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 saw it as a dystopian idea, right? Uh, this notion this notion that uh, that the best and brightest would uh, rise to the top of society. Um, which would mean, and you think about sort of like the, the, the very like class-based uh, British society of, of, of his time, um, which would mean, you know, in, in, in his mind and in his fears, like the potential leaders of the working classes of the labor movement being pulled out of the labor movement and put into the elite, right? And so, so his fear was that meritocracy would work and there would actually be the best and brightest at the top, right? Um, and and he talked about meritocracy as this like you, you know like 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 a uh, really bad and painful uh, system. And then what somehow happened, um, and, and I think it's a really amazing shift, is it became uh, a word with almost exclusively positive connotations, right? In our society now, and in Britain too, um, we want a meritocracy right? We want and what, what, what we worry about is not that meritocracy will work, it is that it doesn't work, right? We, we, we view it as a potential problem, if, uh, if, and when we are falling short of the meritocratic ideal, and people are rising and falling based on things other than their merit.
2: And I think that probably has a lot to do with and, and maybe this is the right time to talk about it. Because because we all want to believe that we have merited, you know, our our position in life, right? That 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 merit goes to, you know, rewards go to people who merit them. So let's talk. A, oh, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about that idea of merit.
1: Okay. So well, we'll so so just to just to, to to reiterate what you just said, I think we live in a society, and and. <laughs> I think this is such an implicit or, or, or taken for granted idea in our society, it's hard to get your head outside of it. But we live in a society where like our dignity as an individual, which meaning like our worth as an individual, is really tied up in whether we feel like we've earned or deserve what we have. Um, and that's not actually the only way to have dignity other societies have established it you know other ways but that's like a really fundamental american idea um so yeah so 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 people really want to be able to feel like yeah i earned or or deserved or merited you know uh what i have um and we worry a lot about whether or not our social system is set up in a way to facilitate that, and you can think about what people talk about when they argue about uh, who deserves things. They talk about privilege. They talk about you know uh, uh, you know silver spoons and head starts and and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but then you've just asked about merit. We also have the sort of question of like, okay, well, what does it what does it mean to earn? what you have. Well, it means I did it on my own. Well, what does that mean? Right? Does that mean you did it because you were really talented? Or because you worked hard? And, and why were you able to work hard? Right? So there's the, the sort of a lot of vague concepts underpinning these things we take for granted.
2: And so I want to come back to where, you know, I, I said the, the title of your book is, About the American dream. So what do these ideas have to do with, you know, the American dream has a lot of different connotations. When I ask my students questions about it, a lot of different stuff seems to circulate around it. What what do you think this idea of meritocracy or merit has to do with the American dream?
1: So, I, yeah, I, I completely agree with you that American dream has a whole bunch of different connotations, some of which don't necessarily, you know, maybe even the first day, at least I think of from what I remember first encountering the term is the whole like, you know, house in the suburbs with a white picket fence and 2.3 children and a golden retriever. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't think that has a ton to do with meritocracy, but um There's, there's these other connotations, of the American dream, which is that like, you can make it. And how are you going to make it? It's not going to be because your dad pays your way. That's not the American dream we're talking about, right? We're talking about like, you can make it the sort of like Horatio Alger story. Right. Even if you are, uh, uh, you know, start with nothing, you can use your uh, uh, your your hard work and your wits and your natural gifts and work your way up and maybe get that, uh, you know, house with the white picket fence and two point three children or whatever it is you define success as in your American dream. But the process of success in the American dream Is supposed to be a meritocratic one.
2: So I'm familiar with some of the literature on the subject of meritocracy, for instance, the work of Joe Littler and and Daniel Markovitz. And of course, a lot of it points out the many contradictions inherent in attempting to organize a society around the idea of merit. Um, One of the really interesting contributions your book makes is that it asks people to talk about their own lives and experiences, and in many cases, how they see and reconcile or even don't those same contradictions. Let's talk a little bit about your research method and how you came to tackling this subject in this way.
1: Yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate that question. Yeah, so so I think what you're referring to on, on, on the sort of prior literature, by the time I got started, I think the, the question of whether or not we actually currently live in a meritocracy was was pretty well answered. <laughs> um, and and and
0: even the question of,
1: like, whether or not we should was starting to be tackled by people like Joe Littler and Daniel Markovitz and uh, uh, there's somebody else who, who published a book recently and, and, and uh, uh, Chris Hayes. Uh, who went to the same super meritocratic high school that I did uh, had uh, had written a book on a bunch, bunch of years ago, um, sort of like in, you know you, you know starting to sort of poke at this question, and I felt like what was underexplored was how this manifests for people and how they think and feel about their individual lives, right? So not like what should our social system be, but like how am I Living this, how my experiences, how do my experiences stack up to these social values? Um, and uh, so my, my, my research method was to try to build a, a pretty just diverse sample of Americans, and I don't have anything remotely approaching a statistically representative sample. Um, but, you know, I'm in the Philadelphia area, so I got around to a bunch of different parts of the Philadelphia area and people in like a lot of different walks of life. I tapped into a lot of different kinds of social networks and I, I interviewed 60 people, sat down with most of them, with all of them for like about an hour and basically said, um, where are you in your work in life? How'd you get here? And I let them sort of tell me a story and, and some people told that story in one minute and some people spent a whole hour doing that. Right. But then I would follow up with questions about sort of the more the, what, what, what I came to understand as the, the pieces of that story. Right. And that would be OK. So what were the like external factors in your journey, right? Things that you, things that you didn't control that maybe contributed to where you ended up. And then what were the individual factors? What was your agency in your journey? Um, and uh, sort of like, you know, put put that story together. Uh, and then toward the end, I, I asked people, do you feel like you have earned or deserve where you're at? and uh, And then do you feel like most people who, you know, you know when you look around our society, earn or deserve where they're at in, in America today. And that was that was pretty much the conversation I had with, with sixty pretty different people.
2: So before we get into some of those conversations, in the first chapter, you analyze how merit is addressed in media accounts of public figures. People like Carly Fiorina, Ivanka Trump, what the people you call American idols. So what does our encounter with such figures say about our understanding of, uh, Americans' understanding of merit and meritocracy? <laughs>
1: Yeah. I apologize for forgetting to even mention that part of my, my methodology was, was looking at some media stuff. Um, the, the, I think the most striking thing about that, the point I really try to take from looking at the sort of like the way we think and talk about public figures is, you know, so, so there's this sort of like very simple, straightforward narrative about the way Americans think about meritocracy, which is, we think we live in a meritocracy, right? Um, like that, that is sort of like the stereotype of Americans. We think we live in a meritocracy uh, and, and our, our, our cultural outlets are sort of constantly beaming to us the message that we live in a meritocracy, that, that, that success is earned, right? And I think that when you look at the way we tell stories about public figures or, or, or sort of like the discourse around public figures, you see something different than that. What you see is that we are quite obsessed with the question of whether people earned where they're at, but it's an open question in every individual case. And so we are constantly trying to suss out about each individual, like how they get there, what did they contribute, what was out of their control, and does that add up to deservedness. Um, You know, I write about I think the the first anecdote in the chapter is about Carly Fiorina, who uh, was running for the Republican presidential nomination in uh, 2016 and used as her like one of her taglines from secretary to CEO right and uh, because she had been a secretary in her early 20s and then she became a ceo and this is like a very like horatio alger meritocratic implication to this this tagline right and then the washington post wrote a fact checker column in which they said carly fiorina's dad was a big shot he was like a um, I, I, I might get the details wrong here. But I think he was like a, a like a, a big shot in the Nixon administration, and he was like a dean of some law school. So yeah, she worked as a secretary like in between college and grad school, but like she was always going to, you know, headed for like the upper echelons of society. And they gave her whatever their rating is like three Pinocchios or something for like an untrue statement. And this launched this this whole big, you know, back and forth discourse about whether or not it was fair for Carly Fury to sort of conjure this Horatio Alger narrative about herself given the advantages that she'd actually had. And I didn't so much want to try to, you know, uh, uh, adjudicate that as I just wanted to point out, like, it's an open question about each individual, right? That we're arguing about whether or not they made it. And even like, what I, I think is sort of most amazing is even in the cases of like star athletes, and like you know, I think I think sports are are are, are different than a lot of other walks of life because like there's a score right? At the end of the game. So, so, so we, we, we know who won and we know who's really good in a way, you know, I think I I say in the book, like you can argue about whether or not Carly Fiorina was like, should have been one of the nominees for the Republican or one of the contenders Republican nomination. You can't argue about whether or not Serena Williams should have a high seed of the U S open, right? Like it's, 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 it's an open and shut case, but we still argue about whether or not athletes, merit their success, right? We argue about whether or not they won the genetic lottery. We look at the stories of how they got to where they were. We ask which of them are sort of overpaid or overrated. Um, so so, so even in those cases, we're sort of trying to figure out um, whether or not merit is the central factor in success.
2: Yeah, I, and I think you even used the example of... Uh... I think, Shaquille O'Neal, right? So, you know, when you talk about that genetic lottery, right, well, you know, he didn't earn being born seven foot whatever and however, you know, but, but even that, you know, when, when we start to point things like that out, it, it sort of denigrates all of the work that the man did in order to become what he became.
1: And I think what's, what, what I find found really interesting is reading about star athletes. I read a bunch of profiles from star athletes. And I started to notice this sentence that popped up and over and over. I won't say every one because I tell my students not to use absolute statements. So so maybe not every single one. But but, um, a sentence I saw over and over would say like, yes, they have these physical gifts, but also. And then it would go on to say the other thing the star athlete had that made them special. And that thing was inevitably... The, the focus of the article, the, the big takeaway, the big punchline. And I think the reason for that is because that is the thing that we want to say is merit. Right? And so if you read the profile of Shaq, you might say, like, sure, he's big, but he's not the only seven foot tall guy in the world, and, and he works really hard at his craft, and blah, blah, blah. They probably say, you know, in Shaq's case, I, mean, I don't know what somebody would say. There are, there are profiles of Shaq, maybe it talks about how hard he works, or it talks about how aggressive he is, and, you know, but there, there's going to be something about him besides just the physical athleticism, which we regard. Typically, as less earned, although I think there are you know weird contradictions in that assumption too
2: yeah, and I think that's what makes sports such an interest uh, uh, an interesting topic here um, because because we it, it is so fraught with contradictions there obviously is a certain degree to which the physical gifts of an individual factor in, but I, you could make that same argument for all kinds of different professions, couldn't you oh
1: for sure i mean um yeah i i've been i don't fl- have
2: the eye hand coordination to be a surgeon i guess is right
1: yeah I, oh absolutely yeah you, you need somebody with steady hands to be a surgeon uh you need somebody with the i mean i like guess that, that's that sports i was gonna be strong arm to be a quarterback but yeah you need lots of things and then like people just have like like, I, I could uh, never have been, like, a physicist. I don't have the mathematical capacity for it. My brain does not work that way. Some people do. I'm sure they work very hard to develop those talents. But, like, I wasn't in that race. You know, people meritocracy, people often use the sort of metaphor of a race. And, like, you know, I didn't even get off the starting line of that race. You know, and it was because of, you know.
2: Sure, because you are not, you don't have it, I mean, people don't. Uh, so the second chapter shifts our attention away from uh, these well-known American idols, and we focus on the not so famous among us. You suggest that people from all walks of life grapple with the question of how they came to be where they are and identify a number of different ways of accounting for their successes and even their failures. Tell us a little bit about the themes that emerged from these discussions.
0: So, um, I'm
1: just trying to think what what order to sort of explain this in. Um, I, I think what what people typically do is they it, 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 there's almost like an equation that that we have in our heads about like what were the external factors, what were the advantages and disadvantages, and then what did I do. And then, like, can I put those together and and decide whether or not I earned what I have? That's a little bit yeah, of, of an oversimplification, but, but
2: yeah. yeah. Well, you call these head starts and handicaps. So, okay, so, so So what are the? So you're
1: so you're talking about the what what I would sort of the the large category of external factors, right? So so people. Uh, one of the first questions we ask ourselves is like, you know, what what was my situation? What advantages and disadvantages and disadvantages that I have? And yeah, I call them head stars and handicaps because that's alliterative. Right. Um, so, uh, so one thing people, so, so people say, okay, what advantages did I have? Um, and it's something I found that was really interesting here. Is that like, you know, I think Americans have something of reputation for uh, not wanting to admit or account for their advantages. I didn't really find that, I, you know, I think you can always argue about whether or not people account for advantages accurately, like there's always a sort of a subjective quality to what constitutes an advantage, but when you ask people to tell their stories about how they got to where they are, they will very frequently say, I had this in my favor, and they, would, they, would, they will cite things that were in their favor, whether it's the help of a mentor, or the class they grew up in, or a lucky break, you know, all kinds of, uh, of, of stuff like that. And then um, there are a couple of storylines that you come that, you, that, that come up a lot that people use to sort of like account for their advantages and their narratives. One of them I call the uh, "born on second base" narrative, which is a, this is a quote that somebody gave me. So I was born on second base. This is a play on a famous quote from the. Uh, former governor of texas and richard said about george w Bush that he was born on third base and it was an insult right like you're born on third base all you got to do is trot home when when somebody like chips a single or right field right this guy says i was born on second base and his implication was like i had a lot of advantages but like I, you know middle of the pack i still had to run hard i still have to try I still have to pay attention you know I wasn't born on third base and so I think what, what a lot of people say about their advantages is like, you know, this is a common advantage or it's a reasonable advantage. And so it doesn't like disqualify me from meritoriousness. Um, the other narrative I earn a lot, which I think is, 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 is really interesting. Maybe even more important is uh, people, people describe earning their advantages retroactively. So I'd say, you know, I got such and such advantage, but I did the right things with it. And so, I don't feel like it disqualifies me from having earned or or even compromises my ability to say that I've earned what I have. So somebody would say, yeah, I I, I got to go to really good schools. My parents paid for my college, but you know, I I, I worked hard when I was there. I took it seriously. And so I I feel okay about that. And I don't know, maybe I'm I'm, I'm getting ahead of of, of where you're going here, Tom, but, but I think that that's a really important dynamic because that's not a meritocratic process. I, I think I, I don't want to disagree with anybody and say they didn't earn it by earning their advantages retroactively. I think that's fine. But what they're not describing is like a fair meritocratic process. If you have a big head start of the race, even if you run really hard, you still had the head start and the race was not fair, right? Um, and, and, and so all I mean by that is not to say that people are, are, are like wrong about their lives, but just that like meritocracy is not in fact the standard they are using for deciding whether or not they earn something. There's some other standard there.
2: Yeah, because I, I think the quote from Ann Richards was something to the effect of, you know, uh, he was born on third base, but believed that he had hit a triple. And what you're, descri- and what you're describing is people who were born on third base, but, but recognized that they were born on third base. But that still flies in the face of what we conceive of as a meritocracy, where we all start at home plate.
1: Right. Yeah. It just like if the standard for earning something is this was a meritocratic process, then it then then having a big advantage like compromises that fatally. Right now. I, and, and, and I think I think people look at that and they say, well, I didn't control where I started. and I don't want to deny myself the opportunity to say that I earned what I have. So I'm going to just look at what I did which is, I think, a reasonable thing for people to say uh, and a way for people to sort of like feel about their lives. It's just not meritocracy.
2: Right. Right. It is not meritocratic. So let's talk also about the handicaps, though, because you tell some fascinating stories here about people who who, in addition, you know, who who clearly were not born on third base. Right. That, That that really did have to even struggle to get to the plate, I think. Yeah,
1: um, you, you see some of the same phenomenon, wh- which is just to say, like, people are aware of these things, and then they, they craft stories using a few different, like, storylines you see over and over again to sort of, like, figure out how to weave or factor in their disadvantageous situations into their conclusions. So one possible storyline you'll see is somebody saying, like, yeah, I had all these disadvantages, but I still made... X, Y, Z really big mistakes. And so at the end of the day, it's on me. You know, I, I heard that a bunch of times, including in some ways that felt almost kind of heartbreaking, right? Um, then you'll hear people say, like, I had such and such disadvantages, but they made me stronger, right? That's a classic American story of like, whatever doesn't make me stronger. I overcame the disadvantages and I moved on to sort of become great in some way. Although I think the probably the most common storyline you hear about disadvantages is it held me back somewhat, <laughs> right? Which is like, I, I think not as not as stereotypically when you hear that as much in like, you know, I guess inevitably like profiles of, of public figures or something, right? Those tend to be more Horatio-Other stories or, or, you know, triumph stories. But what I think what people say most commonly is like, I had this disadvantage, and if I had it, I might have gone further, but I still did okay. And so they're just sort of factoring it in.
2: So the third chapter, you talk about the question of agency, that is how much or how little control an individual can really exercise over what they achieve. What kinds of stories do people use to make sense of their own contribution? I guess we talked about this a little bit because there's obviously a relationship here. But how do people see their own contributions here to the idea of achieving the American dream?
1: Well, so so I, I think okay, so I think one thing we going to ask is 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 sort of like, well, what do people even mean by what is my own contribution? Right, because I think as, as we talked about, yeah, we talked about this a little. We talked about like Shaquille O'Neal. That's not always entirely clear, right? Um, like, like, are your talents your own contribution? Uh, I think a lot of I think a lot of people don't 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 think they are, right? Um, and so when you ask people, "What did you pitch in?" I, people don't actually talk about talent that much in describing how they got to where they are, right? Almost nobody I talked to was like, yeah, I, I, I got ahead in life because I'm really smart. Or even, you know, more humbly, like I'm, I'm, I'm really good at math or, or I'm really mechanically inclined, right? People tend to say, okay, I'm a little mechanically inclined or I have facility with numbers, right? But then they would say, well, the, what my contribution was, and then they would go on to say something else, right? Uh, probably the most common thing is hard work. People see hard work as, you know, um, a, uh, a meritorious endeavor. Um, but there are complications there too. Of course, you can work hard at, at, at doing something that you shouldn't do. You can work hard at like an immoral pursuit. You can work hard in like a, a, a way that fails to get you ahead because you're making bad decisions, right? So there's not like, a, and, 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 and also people understand and acknowledge that hard work doesn't always work doesn't always get you ahead, right? A lot of people I talked to said they worked hard and it didn't help them. Um, so hard work is sort of sometimes what people cite as the their contribution, but not always. Sometimes people cited their contribution, their sort of like agency in the process as like drive or ambition. Um, but people have mixed feelings. Like ambivalent feelings about drive or ambition because you can apply drive you can imagine ambition is not always a positively, you know, uh, a a word that carries positive connotations. It can be ambitious in a bad way. Um, Sometimes people cited like the choices or decisions that they made as what they contributed, but, but not necessarily because people felt like sometimes I make a decision that like, You know, that's on me. It reflects on my own ability, but it sort of depends on whether or not I had decent options. It's efficient information. Right. So I interviewed one guy who decided to go into construction right before the housing crash. And he and, and, you know, the, the career he had there fell apart, but he didn't regard that as a mistake he had made. You know, it was like, I had, I had, there's no way I could have known a housing crash was coming. That was way outside of my control and my world. So like, there's a failure there, but that's not on me, even though like my, my choice is behind it. Right. Um, so if, 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 Tom, I think I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read a quick summary. I think is useful here. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, okay. so, so we talk about the American idea of agency, uh, The talents you're born with are out of your control. We'd like to think they really only matter if you work hard. Working hard is under your control, but it might not always pay off. Plus, the ambition that fuels certain kinds of hard work is not always admirable. Decision-making is sometimes under your control, depending on the circumstances. Morality is important, but it's not sufficient to deserve reward. And that's the American definition of merit, which is to say it's very muddy right when we say like well, okay what does it mean what does it mean for you to do something and deserve something i think a lot of people but something that happens sometimes in the conversation when i push people is they just kind of got annoyed with me and like you know like like you know I, I don't want to i don't want to think about this like that that hard like you know like i uh uh i i i, I try hard and so i'm, I'm giving myself the credit
2: so, although we we didn't really touch on this, but part of part of this idea of agency um, also includes a sense of morality, right? That that people people believe that uh, behaving in a moral or ethical way uh, helps them to deserve what they get.
1: Yeah, for sure. Although I tend to, yeah, I I I I. I, I I, my sense was that it was more of like a necessary but not sufficient condition. that you have to behave morally. If you behave immorally, then you can't deserve reward. but that you can't just behave morally to deserve reward. You have to also apply hard work or good decision making or talent or something. It was sort of like a bar you have to clear to uh, to deserve reward in, in in the sort of, you know in, in your working life in the meritocratic sense.
2: So in the fourth chapter, and, and we kind of talked about this distinction already, but, but I want to talk about the, the folks who you interviewed and, and how they understand this, the murky distinction that exists between merit and meritocracy. Where's the line that divides these ideas and, and how do we use that line to make sense of ourselves and our culture?
1: Well, so I didn't really talk to people about the words meritocracy, um, because I felt like I wanted to use more like, you know, colloquial language. So I talked to people what they had deserved and earned. But one thing I think was really interesting was at the end of each interview, I would ask people, okay, I, think I said this earlier, uh, uh, did, did you end up about where you deserve to be? And do you think we live in a society where we get what we deserve. And what was really striking about the answers was how many people gave answers to those two questions that seemed to run in different directions. Right. So a lot of people said we don't live in a meritocracy, but I got what I deserve. And a few people said we do live in a meritocracy, but I didn't get what I deserve. I got lucky or I got screwed. Right. Um, And the, So when you talk about sort of like the relationship between merit and meritocracy, I think this is where you're going with this, with this question, Tom, um, in, in, in sort of turning our lives into stories and asking whether we've, we've done enough to deserve what we have, we find ways to avoid using societal meritocracy as a standard to evaluate ourselves. And we just ask, like, did I show enough merit? But of course that's a pretty fuzzy standard, too. Like, what's enough merit, right? Um, and so you end up with people telling a lot of different stories that seem to have a lot of different standards um, and a lot of different conclusions.
2: So you, you wrap up your book um, by arguing, and, it, and it's, again, through sort of a, a delightful detour through the phrase, deserves got nothing to do with it. Um and, and here you offer some prescriptions for how we might grapple with issues of merit by by really altering the stories that we tell about it. Um what are the changes about our narrative surrounding merit that you think would be most helpful? I think there's four of them here.
1: Yeah, you talk so so yes, I will I will talk about those in one second. I wanna sort of like give some context is that like, you know, I, I think it's become something Somewhat fashionable to sort of call for, I forget which of the recent books talks about like emancipation for meritocracy and, and, and for that to be replaced by something else. And I think what, what I end up saying is I think it makes more sense to think of meritocracy as like getting a demotion. Rather than you know freeing ourselves from it entirely, um, I think like there's a, a lot of like uh, important ideas come out of the sort of meritocratic premise, like the idea that birth shouldn't t- determine destiny, that employers should hire qualified applicants, that that trying is worth your time, and so I say instead of instead of throwing meritocracy out, we should sort of acknowledge that it's always gonna be imperfect. It's an inevitably imperfect situation. And so the meritocratic processes we have should have lower stakes, right? We should try to level the playing field, but we should try to improve quality of life for people anyway, like regardless of what the playing field looks like. And then I say, so I think that we could think and talk about uh, uh, meritocracy in some different ways to sort of like help encourage that sort of thinking culturally. Um, and so, so, so the four kinds of stories that I suggest uh, uh, telling more of are one is, story, one is the stories that celebrate successes and explain failures as group endeavors without necessarily trying to figure out individual contributions. Uh, I think that we don't see enough of those. And I think that. That is, in fact, a, a frequently a reality of how success and failure happen, but it's not really a, a, a way we think about like meritocracy and individual success and failure. That like it depends what group you end up in, you know, what team you're on or what company you're with, that kind of stuff. Um, the second uh, kind of story is I, I suggest we should tell stories that acknowledge the role of talent but treat it as unearned. We were talking earlier about like surgeon has to has has to have steady hands, um, and so instead of pretending that that has nothing to do with it, um, we should admit that that has something to do with it, but sort of like understand that as an imperfection of meritocracy that is always going to be the case, right? Um, uh, I talk about stories that emphasize the role of chance in our lives. You know, I think one of the one of the big themes of what we what I was talking about, I was talking about how people talk about advantages and disadvantages, is they're sort of trying to take advantages and advantages and turn them into agency or or or
2: at least like you know like 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 uh, figure out
1: how agency is more important than them. And I think we could just sort of let go of that a little bit and be like, yeah, sometimes chance is determinant, right? Luck is really important. Um, and the fourth kind of story uh, that I suggest telling more of is stories that avoid the trap of suggesting that we're like almost in a meritocracy or sometimes in a meritocracy, right? So you look back at like the Carly Fiorina thing we talked about earlier. A lot of the people who sort of argued that Carly Fiorina didn't deserve what she had because her dad was a big shot. There's like this this unspoken implication or sometimes a spoken implication that somebody else did earn what they have, right? And that if we could just fix XYZ unmeritocratic dynamics then we'd be in a meritocracy and that would be, and then we'd be, that would be set. Right. Um, now I think we should try to fix unmeritocratic dynamics, but first of all, we're never going to get all the way there. We're never going to be set. And second of all, we come all the way back to the Michael Yellow thing of like, it's not, it, it, it's not necessarily where we want to be in a perfect meritocracy. Right. Um, and I think that uh, we should uh, uh, avoid critiquing meritocratic press uh, processes in the way that suggests that again, if we just make it a meritocracy, we'll be good to go. I think we will still have all these, you know, even if you're able to eliminate, you know, uh, all kinds of like, you know, uh, uh, structural advantages disadvantages. I think it'll still be the case that, like, for example, like. Uh, a narcissist who's in the right place at the right time has a pretty good chance of succeeding, you know, in a lot of contexts in life. Um, uh, and so, meritocracy is not going to be, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's not going to get us to sort of like that—that that like uh, perfect, fair, and efficient
2: outcome that we're all looking for. Well, again, I just want to tell you that um, you know this book. Offers so many different uh, provocations to asking us to think about these questions, um, and 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 the focus on how we all make sense of some of these ideas, I think, is so important to look at because, as you say, we we should not. It, Abandon the idea of meritocracy, but we do have to learn to grapple with it, and, and make it so that uh, perhaps some of its more pernicious aspects don't don't dominate us as much.
1: I I agree with you. Agree with me. Thank you for the kind words. <laughs>
2: Uh, So before we wrap up today, let me ask uh, what you are working on currently or what we might look forward to from you next.
1: So um, it's kind of a long walk, but but my uh, my field is actually uh, mostly uh, journalism. I was a journalist uh, for a decade, and and, and now I, I research and write about journalism. Uh, I've taken an interest recently in the relationship between uh, conservatives and journalism, um, and uh, which which I regard as, a, 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 the, the, I think, the sort of like, um, you know, uh, uh, informational divide and trust divide of, Pretty big problem. Um, And so I've been working on that. I have a piece coming out with my colleague, Tony Nadler, hopefully pretty soon, a Columbia Journalism Review about the different philosophies you'll find among journalists about how to deal with the fact that the conservative movement writ large like regards mainstream journalism as, at best, untrustworthy and at worst, explicitly the enemy. Uh, we talk about how the the sort of two big schools of thought are, are make nice or screw them. And they try trying to think if there's there's any other, uh, possible approaches. Um, and I'm working on a piece about like this this local newspaper in Pennsylvania County that's uh, really purple, uh, meaning like pretty pretty politically mixed, and has all the reason in the world to want to be able to serve a cross partisan audience, but just ends up getting the same exact fake news subscription cancellation. Like, uh, you know, from, from, from all of the, uh, I shouldn't say all, but from like a central portion of like the right wing in the area, they've got right wing leaders and politicians, will don't talk to them anymore, and just this profound alienation of like now the local press as though they were CNN. Um, and, uh, and so I'm talking to people out, out, out there about uh, what the hell happened.
2: Well, that sounds very interesting. Doran Tosig, thank you again for your time and and really for this excellent work on on a very important topic. This is fun, Tom. Thank you so much. Once again, my guest today has been Doran Tosig, the author of What We Mean by the American Dream, Stories We Tell About Democracy, from ILR Press, an imprint of Cornell University. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to The New Books Network.